This is Inspiring Design, where unique innovators come together to share their knowledge, share their insight, and keep us up to date with the latest industry trends. And here's your host, Rashan Senanayak. What's up, listeners? Welcome to Season 4 of Inspiring Design with Rashan Senanayaka. This is where the best of the best brands, experts, change makers, and thought leaders come together to share their valuable insights, experience, and knowledge, all centered around the growth sector in advanced manufacturing within Industry 4.0, encompassing various industries, technologies, skills, knowledge, trends, as well as stakeholders, all the while linking it back into education within schools and universities. BIM BIM. Today's episode is all about building information modeling. And with me, we have here none other than Nathan Love, one of the leading BIM experts in Australia and an expert from Multiplex. Nathan is a BIM manager with vast experiences in design drafting, management, training, and resourcing in the engineering and construction industry. Having worked in three different countries, covering a broad area of disciplines, including civil, marine, industrial, mining, specializing in structural engineering, alongside Revit and BIM systems, Nathan is currently engaged in BIM management for the Queen's Wharf project. He is also a founding committee member of the local BIM community, Briz BIM, and a regular speaker at BIM-related technology conferences internationally, such as the Autodesk University in Las Vegas. So he's the man for the job. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Welcome to Inspiring Design with Rashan Senanayaka. Nathan, welcome to Inspiring Design. Can we start off with a little bit of background on yourself? What's your story? Sure. So uh, I sort of grew up in central Queensland as a country boy, moved to Brisbane, uh, started a cadetship in the 90s, and uh, from there I actually moved up to London to do a stint, and then um, from there went to Canada to work for a bit, and then back to London to work for a construction company. Uh, came back to Brisbane in uh, 2001, and during that sort of time, I worked at various firms, small and big, had different roles from um, sort of being a CAD manager to a team leader to ultimately a BIM manager. Um, during that process, I started getting involved in BIM. So I think it was around 2007, 2008, started going to conferences and started seeing some of the software that was coming out and could sort of see where it was going. Mm. So um, I was trying to implement... Uh, the 3D world into a lot of companies where I was going <clears throat> to ultimately sort of try and get us on the forefront. Uh, had mixed sort of uh, opinions of it. Some mm. pushed back, some were encouraging. I wanted to make the leap or not. And uh, ultimately in recent times, I've ended up at Multiplex, mm -hmm. which is where I am now to uh, be the BIM coordinator on the Queen's Wharf project. So Exciting. That's sort of my background in a nutshell. I'd spoken at various conferences the last... 10 years or so, mm. uh, technology conferences all around the world and locally. Mm -hmm. uh, I was also a founding member of the local Brisbane committee, which you're Down well aware of, yes, yep, yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, which we started in 2013. 
still going strong now um, mm-hmm. amid sort of the COVID lockdowns, but we're still um, uh, going well and we're getting consistently high numbers, so which is encouraging with this space. So that's sort of where I'm at. Absolutely. And I understand that you've spoken at some of the uh, conferences for Autodesk and, and in Las Vegas, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. So 2014, I spoke at Vegas, the Autodesk University. Um, I actually did a talk back then on uh, a case study I worked on as a BIM manager for a big rail project and infrastructure. So that mm-hmm. was kind of unique in the sense where I was applying BIM to civil, more mm-hmm. civil than just buildings. Um, so I was very um, excited about that one. It sort of really pushed the envelope. Um, modeling and creating data within civil components instead of just a traditional um, uh, building project. Yeah. Um, I've done a bit more work in that area since. My main background is structural, but I've worked in civil as well. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. Do you have yeah. a preference? Oh, definitely structural. Um, I have a good appreciation for all the disciplines, services, architecture, yeah. um, having to work with them and coordinate and collaborate. Uh, but I've always preferred structure. Um, yeah, and you know, I do like civil as well because mm. uh, it's just so different to that. And uh, we can see now that it's um, getting more into this space as well. It's, it, the trouble with civil, it, it, it is different into buildings. Like uh, it does require different software. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is different sort of um, components to it that uh, you know, need to be sort of fulfilled with um, a, you know, a highway or a major infrastructure project compared to a small building. But um, ultimately, the basics are the same when it comes to BIM. You know? yeah. um, and I think that's one of the things I want to touch base a little bit later on, exactly what are the different types of softwares. And, um, and being structural, your architect, I think architects are naturally your worst enemy. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so, sitting across the table right now. So that's all good. But um, so one of the things that I really want to understand and, and help the viewers understand is exactly what is the design and construction industry. I know that all the elements that you've talked about falls within that. So in your opinion, what is the design and construction industry? So, I mean, it's always been there. It's just evolved with particularly technology and how we do things. So mm. if you think back, um, probably our great-grandparents' era, um, we still built roads, we still built buildings, but it was just done in a lot different way. Obviously more manual, more hand-drawn. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have computers back then. Um, the data being shared was literally just guys on site or in yep. the office, and that yep. was it. You know, you didn't have emails, you didn't have record keeping, mm. um, you didn't have digital databases like we do now. So um, it's always been there. The whole concept doesn't change. You still need good people. You still need uh, the experienced people. Um, there's still always a budget. Um, but where it's evolved to now, it's, um, you know, we are in the information age. If you want to look at where we're sort of going. Um, so combined with the technology that we've got and all the tools available to us, um, you know, it's really almost getting to the point of information overload. But we can definitely use this to our advantage. And um, the people who can apply good principles to that will do really well. Yeah. Uh, people who don't understand the, the right principles of design and construct, uh, who kind of miss the point and mm. just abuse the software, mm. they're just going to spend more money. Yeah. So I think the best way to put it in terms of design and construct now is um, if you use the tools correctly, you'll save a lot of money. Mm. If you don't, it's like a magnify. It'll cost you money. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, so, yep. and I think that's a very valid um, piece of advice for anyone anyone listening. So you've mentioned Queens Wharf, and obviously that's in the radar of everyone, especially if you're within Australia. Um, 
I think it's been labeled as the one of the biggest projects in the Southern Hemisphere. So heavy, heavy amount, and you're right in the center of it. Tell us a little bit about Queensworth. What's it been like? Uh, it's been great. I mean, I was very excited to be um, joining Multiplex to be their BIM coordinator for this project. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an iconic project, like you said, one of Brisbane's probably biggest ever project. It takes up between 10 and 15 percent of the Brisbane CBD, wow. put in perspective, yeah, because it's not just the resort itself; it spreads out to the River Line and what we call Ridge Line and the River Walk and such. Yeah, um, so it, you know, in terms of sheer volume, it's massive. I always say it's literally to me, uh, it is honestly eight projects in one. We sort of subdivide it into different zones. Yeah, um, and just the sheer volume of it is mm. massive. Um, so, um, it is a BIM project, and the uh, certainly the most heaviest BIM demanding project I've worked on. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of data. Um, to sort of put it in perspective, um, there's probably on average about um, 40 or 50 parameters per discipline per model. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, I'm up to close to 160 models. Wow. And uh, so, you know, you can do the math. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, how much data we have to manage and make sure that we get correct and uh, give the client what they want. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I did have some figures which I didn't bring with me, um, you know, and cool stats on, on Queen's Wharf, but uh, mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, it's a monster. Um, yeah. It's an absolute monster. And yeah. it's one of those things that's going to redefine the actual skyline. So from a design point of view, I'm a big geek when it came to it. Straight away, I think a couple of my colleagues at Airbus as well, I think they're, they're, they're running point on the landscape um, design, design point of view of that. And... It's just cool. It's, it's something I think at the forefront of it, especially coming from an architecture background, it's awesome. And um, it's really, I think, valued to understand how it actually comes into fruition and how life gets given to a design through the data and actually managing this level of information. So that's pretty cool. And so this actually takes me to my next question. You already mentioned how the industry looked like where it's literally guys on site versus... You know, the, there was very little information or data actually communicated. What do you think the biggest change would be compared to 20, 30 years ago? And what do you think it might be in the future, 20, 30 years from now? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so probably one of the things I've picked up on is uh, if we're talking design, sharing of information, if you look back 30, 40 years, um, if you dig up some old sort of what we term blueprints, you know, mm-hmm. some old hand drawings, um, of buildings that actually got designed and built, you'll actually be surprised to show that there was very little drawings. Like mm. There was a very tiny amount of drawings. You know, the drawing list was small. Yeah. Um, once we sort of moved into this sort of technology side of producing drawings, when it started with computers with AutoCAD and eventually evolved into Revit and ArchiCAD and other software, um, it comes back to what I sort of made earlier about abusing the technology. So what happened was is that we found it was a lot easier and quicker mm. to spit out literally hundreds of drawings yeah. the same amount of time. So in theory, that's great. We can give more information, but sometimes more is not always great. Less is more. Less is more, exactly. So um, if we were to have the tools available now and be back in time with the experience and knowledge of how to do things, mm-hmm. you know, we would be so efficient. I think we've lost a bit of efficiency because we... I've fallen in the trap of just giving so much more than it's probably needed mm. uh, just because we can. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, there is great benefits of it. We, the whole idea with um, 
the BIM in the design and construction industry is to reduce uh, errors and RFIs, you know, request for information on site. Mm-hmm. So if we can reduce that, you're going to save um, major stuff ups on site, which ultimately saves money and also safety. Safety becomes an issue too. So yeah. that's the main goal of that. And so we have the tools to do that now. And um, But again, if we don't have the right approach and the right people on the job, mm-hmm. then, you know, it, it becomes secondary to what's important getting that done so in terms of the second part of the question where are we heading um, like technology is just going to keep going exponential so mm. I see a future down the track where we've gone from paper drawings to more just within digital representations exchanging models and PDFs and so forth mm-hmm. I think the AR and VR side of things are just going to keep growing yeah so I see a time in the future probably not that far where clients instead of having a screen spinning around a nice pretty model to see what they're going to get. Mm. They'll just put the goggles on their head mm. and they'll literally just be walking around. Yeah, and, and I think that's already happening now. It is happening now, but just not mainstream. So yep. the technology's been there for years, yep. but it will become mainstream. In that. I think that's where it's all going. It'll get to the point where the, the client will have the option of, well, interactive changing of things within uh, the space as they're doing it. To see yep. what doing. So instead of just saying, I want to see what this looks like, I want, can you do this for me, give me some options, They'll be able to do it themselves. Yeah. So I think. Do you that's think the saying. Do you think your uh, the designer's role will become redundant? I don't think it'll become redundant because they still have to provide something to start with. Yeah. True. So they've got to have something to start with. You're still going to have architects, still going to have engineers. You're going to have all the other important disciplines uh, to make sure it all works to code and stands up and safety and so forth. So they're also going to have, be there. It's just how the information design gets presented. Yeah. That's what's going to change. Yeah. So um, VR, AR, holograms. I think mm-hmm. holograms are probably going to be there too. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's just a new experience for clients to see it. And it'll be that bit of wow factor. And once the clients get a taste of it, yeah. they won't go back. Like I've never seen a client yet say, yeah, that model looks cool, but can I just have the paper too? Yeah. <laughs> you know, once you get a taste of it, yeah. that's it. They're, they're on board that's and the they'll moment. expect nothing less. Yeah. And that eventually will, you know, feed into the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've, um, there, there's been a, some words that I want to clarify. I think you've already mentioned things like um, VR, AR, the holograph, holograms actually coming into play. And we've talked about BIM. So yes. BIM actually stands for Building Information Modeling. But can you explain in your expertise exactly what is it? What is BIM? Yes. <laughs> the million dollar question. Yeah, the big question. Um, so, yeah, everyone's got their own sort of defined reasons of BIM. Um, the way I sort of see it is... Um, it's not just um, isolated to the B building anymore. Like it's infrastructure, as I touched on earlier as well. But mm-hmm. you know, information is sort of the main key one. The modeling component on the M, that's almost just becoming sort of secondary. Now. Everyone's just at, at a stage. Well, yeah, that's just what we expect. That's yeah. what you do. Yeah. Um, the information is what's getting used. So, so if I circle back to Queen's Wharf event, um, it's a BIM project, like I said, but it's actually at the level of an FM. Mm-hmm. which is facilities management. So the client wants a digital representation of their asset mm-hmm. at handover. Mm-hmm. So in the future, they can easily isolate, filter certain components to check on things like warranty or maintenance and things like that So, yeah. um, from a cost perspective. So in terms of what is BIM, it's providing um, a level of information at the start, during, and finish of a project. So... When I say at the start, you're utilizing the software, the 3D part of it, the 
conceptual images, modeling and stuff to see what the client wants. Yeah. And during the design construction, that's when you start getting the coordination, the um, clash detection, making sure the design works fit so there's less problems on site. And then um, actually then feeding into des- uh, constructing it on site with other plugins so you can do set out with, you know, all different companies are sort of providing that with um, mm-hmm. laser sort of set out for um, services, for example. Um, and then ultimately the handover. So what the client gets at the end. So when we're talking BIM, back in the day when you're saying, you know, how it's, things have changed, so the client would end up with a big pile of roller drawings. There you go, we're done. Yep. Here you go. Yep. There's your archives yep. of drawings to store in the basement and it may get pulled out 20 years from now when someone wants to do a refurb or yep. something. Yep. So now the client will get a something on a USB stick or something on a hard drive and say, well, here's the model, here's all the, the data that you need, depending on how, what level of BIM it was, mm-hmm. and use that to whatever you decided you wanted at the start of this project. So whether that um, is used, um, you know, at a low level BIM, I say that's your 3D. Mm-hmm. So it's been used, it's all been modeled, it's all the geometry, everything's been coordinated, great. Um, but then you might use it for 40 during that phase. So 40 is for... Um, uh, for scheduling and um, your programming and stuff. That's usually just for a transition, but then you get to 5D for costing, mm-hmm. same sort of thing. So mm-hmm. you can you can gauge it and then ultimately sort of 60 onwards is your facilities management, like I mentioned on, uh, mentioned on Queen's Wharf. So yeah. um, I think the handover of um, how we give the client their um, information, their asset, that's sort of where it's sort of changed the most. Yeah, so I think the delivery, the package of the, at the end of the, end of the line is that's changed dramatically i was actually involved with some um, quote-unquote bim research at qut while i was going through my studies and one of the things that were outlined was that it's up to 12d of modeling now i think that's theoretically it's possible but what's your experience on that you've mentioned obviously four five d yep what about six onwards (laughs) so six d is what we call fm so beyond that, I think for memory, like uh, 7D is when you get sort of, um, you're sort of doing the opposite is when you're dismantling the asset, so to speak. Demolition or refurbishment. Yeah, that's or, right. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, once you get sort of past 6D, it's sort of hyperbole or whatever you define it as. Like, I don't get caught up in that. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a bit of a, I don't know, people outdoing each other. Yeah, Assuming fair enough. Now, yep. I, I, I really don't buy into that once you get beyond that. I don't see any purpose. Yes, in theory, that might be something there but i don't see anything beyond fm honestly and i think the reason i wanted to ask that question is when when there's a huge leap between what we know as 3d a lot of people can they know what two dimensions are they know what 3d is because we've been using it for a while so after that point things start to get changed and then when all of a sudden someone says 12 dimension modeling that seems like it's out of this world. Mm. So there's there's a huge leap between that, and it's almost an inconceivable leap, and people, it discourages people, which is why I wanted to ask that question. Now, I know that person through my own personal experiences, architects, for example, through conventional practices, have gone into becoming BIM managers simply because of their skill sets. So before we get into the skill sets, can you outline the software in your expertise? classify under BIM? Uh, it keeps growing. I mean, literally every <laughs> year, it, the software is part of that sort of exponential curve with technology. So mm. software is popping up all the time. Yeah. Um, and like all technology, um, there will no doubt be some software that sort of comes in the industry which might be better than what most of us are using, 
but it just won't end up being the winner. Mm. I mean, you think back to like with your social media, like Facebook end up being the winner. It may yeah. not have been the best at the time, it yeah. just end up being the winner. True. Uh, same with email and messengers and applications like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like currently, if, uh, if I was to speak of my own personal experience, I'm sort of, I have to be across about 12 different types of software with my job. Wow. So, um, and I might be a bit of a guru, for lack of a better word, in some of them, mm. but certainly not all of them. Yeah. I have to have an appreciation of what the rest can do. And, um, you know, no one can be across the lot at any one time. Yeah. Um, so it is constantly growing. There will be sort of some that will um, uh, end up being the winner as a market adoption. Um, mm. For example, there's a, a huge sort of, um, uh, what would you say, um, divide between Revit and Archicad users, yeah. as an example. Yeah. Um, so Revit is what I've sort of, got involved in early because I could see where it was going. I think I started learning Revit about 2006. Yeah, wow. Um, sort of a pretty early adopter. And then um, I thing I liked about Revit, it, it's multidiscipline. So it, it covers all yeah. flavors of, of, an, of a project. Hmm. Uh, Archicad, I've got no doubt Archicad is better than Revit for certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where it falls down is that it cannot sort of give that diversity like Revit does. Now, we mm-hmm. have... Um, a file format called IFC, mm-hmm. Industry Foundation class. So that was brought in to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and in theory, it works to a point, but it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, interoperability is a big thing with BIM. Um, all software has to try and play well together to a point um, in order to share information between disciplines. Because particularly at my level, when you're dealing with different subcontractors and such, some are using Inventor, some are using SketchUp, some are just using AutoCAD, yep. some are using Archicad, Revit, it just the list goes on. And then you've got all the plugins that tie into all that as well. Yeah. And when you have to deliver something as one final sort of format, you need to get it all to work together. True. And that's one of the sort of the things I've been involved in a lot of trying to come up with workflows to make the software talk to each other. Because when you've got the likes of Autodesk and Bentley and Graphisoft and all the other ones, you know, they're out against each other. They're trying to get market share. They're yeah. Trying to sell. So they're usually not too concerned about trying to, um, you know, and why would they? Why would they spend the money investment to try and help out another one? Yeah. Share information. Some do it to a point, but I guess the whole IFC thing is supposed to be there for that. I guess it's a key balance because if, if people don't actually use it towards a particular level of flexibility, they're not going to adopt that software. So the Competi- even though they are competing, they do have to shake hands sometimes. They do, yeah. Well, they have to prove to the uh, industry that they can be compatible because if you, it doesn't matter if you were a software vendor and you said, well, ours is better than all the rest. But, and if people said, well, great, but can we bring in this software that we use? And mm. if you said no, so well, sorry. Yeah. You're no good to us. Yeah. You have to be compatible. Yeah. And the market will determine which software um, packages will, will sort of um, make its way to the top. But, um, again, that's like any sort of technology. Um, and, um, you know, in the case of Autodesk, I mean, they have the lion's share. And even if another company, if you develop a software company and you provided something that was far better than Autodesk hmm. at half the price, hmm. you would almost be find it impossible to break the market because companies have already invested Long all this times, time, yeah. money, training, everything yeah. to go down this path of these Autodesk products, yeah. as an example. And so that's a huge cost to them, even if you can give it for half, you know, a fraction of the cost. And yeah. it's a way better package. Mm. 
it's just the way it works out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. And how many years of Revit experience do you think you've had? And and if you were, let's say, someone who's never used Revit, how long do you think in your experience might take until they can become proficient at it enough for industry standard, do you think? Uh, depends on the individual. I mean, I... I'll be honest, I didn't. I was one of these people that didn't pick it up real easy. I really forced myself hard to stick with it mm-hmm. uh, when I was transitioning way back when from AutoCAD to Revit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just stuck at it. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of smarter guys out there than me um, and girls who would pick it up probably quicker than I did. Mm-hmm. So, but Revit's one of those things, even though I've been using it for 12, 13 years, I still don't know everything about Revit. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's that much to it. I know certainly a lot about it. But mm-hmm. the other thing is, too, it keeps evolving like any software package and you, it's really hard to keep on top of all the latest enhancements and updates. Mm. And um, But in terms of just being an efficient user, I mean, de- depending on what you're doing as well, I mean, if you're a hydraulic drafter or if you're a structural or if you're an architecture, the, it's going to depend on what you have to produce. Yeah. So if you're only focusing on one small component on the building that you only have to produce this, and if you learn the tools in Revit to do that, you might be whiz-banging it after a couple of months and be yeah. fine where you go. But if you take someone like yourself in architecture and you have to cover a lot of different areas and components in it, mm. um, that's a lot longer to, to bring on board. True. And um, yeah, so some people pick up things quicker in software than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the key part of it is um, know what you're trying to produce. Like mm-hmm. Know what your ultimate goal is. I've seen so many modelers in the past, particularly when they're quite young, they learn the tools, but they don't have the foundation of design. They don't have, you know, the inkling of, well, what do I really have to give the client? What are we really trying to achieve here? Yeah. And they can fall in the trap of over-modeling or going down things a certain way, which may not be that smart. Yeah. Um, and I think some designers, especially in, uh, I see this within the university era is, they get limited by their their skills of the software so they compromise their design skills based on what they know mm-hmm. for the software rather than thinking of it as an extension of yes. what they're supposed to deliver yep becomes reverse engineered on yeah. almost exactly yeah. yeah yeah that's a valuable piece of advice now what do you think are the key skills if someone's looking at implementing bim or getting into the design and construction industry what are some key skills that you think are required um I think if you're just starting out, like stick to what you want to do initially. So if you're uh, getting into the design and construction industry, uh, pick a flavor that you like. So whether it's architecture, structural, mechanical, electrical, whatever it may be, hmm. um, you know, go down, go down that path first. And um, once you understand and um, have a good understanding of what you're doing design-wise, you know, the software comes later. So um, you know, being in BIM, I guess you need to be across not just the software, like I mentioned, but uh, you have to have a really good appreciation of the whole package. So you might specialize in architectural or electrical or something, but then, and that's well and good, but if you want to move into the BIM space, mm-hmm. you need to have a good appreciation of oh, how everything well. else comes together because you need to know up front what questions to ask. Yeah. You need to know what to allow for, particularly when you've got to set up um, a project mm-hmm. uh, that's for BIM that you need to allow for all disciplines what their um, parameters need to be. Yeah. You know, so... Um, so systems thinkers, essentially. 
Yeah, exactly. So think of the whole building. Think of the whole asset. Yeah. Um, too many people get caught up in their own little bubble. They just think, well, I'm doing my bit. And then they issue it out and yeah. they say, well, I'm done. But yeah. it doesn't stop there. Yeah. So just if everyone just had a little bit of consideration for everyone else, mm-hmm. you know, most projects will go a lot better. Yeah. So I would say I would say my advice for anyone who wants to get into this space uh, with BIM is, um, um, yeah, pick your field first, mm-hmm. foremost. Um, Specialise in that. And then don't think you have to be a BIM expert from the start. That's not how it works. You know, pick your field first and then get, you know, get your experience and knowledge uh, to see whatever what everyone else needs to do and what their problems are, what they're facing. Yeah, absolutely. That's valuable advice. Now, what do you think about the current education system looking at the secondary and tertiary? Do you think it's keeping up with the skills required for industry in terms of tech, in terms of skills? Do you think there's a disconnect or what, do you, what are your thoughts on that so far? Uh, I think it is overall um, from what I can see. Um, I mean, there's... Um, Companies like yourself, you know, mm-hmm. that's uh, you know that's helping you know uh, kids get into this space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think um, some of the conferences that I've been to in the past. Um, one issue that I did find is that you sort of had a, a group um, of key leaders in the industry that were really pushing the envelope mm-hmm. uh, with technology and design and BIM, and that was great. But then you sort of had to pinch ourselves to remind us of well there's actually still a big gap mm. the rest of the industry is still yeah way yeah. back there so um i think it's just bringing everyone else you know along for the journey and uh i think you know yeah it is it is keeping up with it um but i th- i don't know about the design side of it so i think at least in australia we've probably got a bit of a lack of um old heads that can teach mm the new generations coming through about design on any discipline for that matter. Um, Because that's the key fundamentals. I mean, it doesn't matter how good the software is, you still need to know what you're doing. Um, And I think that could potentially be a trap where next generation comes in, they learn the software, they learn all the tricks, and that's great. But if the fundamentals aren't there, then uh, I think that's where the gap will be. Yeah, and I think that's you're essentially describing collaboration, empathy, and experimentation that comes with before the technology, which is another word for it, is yes. design thinking. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think that in terms of, um, you know, priorities, you know, the, the, the key principles of, you know, design and construction need to be the same. Yeah. You know, going back to our ancestors, whatever, that does, that has not changed. Yes, mm. technology and the tools have gotten a lot better, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean they become more priority. Yeah. You know, they've always got to be secondary. True, true. Now, one of the things that I always love to ask each guest is what's their advice for students, whether they're in high school, um, maybe senior years, even university. What's your advice for students and graduates? Just overall? Overall, when it comes uh, to within this industry. (laughs) All right. Um, I guess it's, you know, the old cliche of sort of any industry you get into, just do what you love doing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, work out what you want to do first, what you want, what interests you, um, the rest will sort of follow, mm. you know. Um, yeah. It's, um, yeah, with our industry design and construction, well, one thing I do like about our industry is that it's very diverse. So um, if you decide, you've got, I would say that if you get into this space, you will have a lot of fallback. So if you, if a student decides to get into mechanical engineering mm. and they do their studies and they end up with a, you know, a cadetship or something with a company, and then they find after a few years they actually don't like it. Mm-hmm. Well, 
they've got the option to then move to electrical or structural or something yep. else. Yep. You're still within the industry, but you can hop around. Transferable skills. Exactly, yeah. Yep. You've got, your skills aren't going to suddenly just go out the window because they're still going to be applicable. Yeah. So I think that's um, something that makes it a little more unique that we've got room to move around mm. different disciplines yep. you know, in the design construct. Absolutely. And the other side of the coin when it comes to education is that are the teachers and educators. Now, if they're obviously not within a background of architecture or design or construction or um, mechanical or whatever, mm-hmm. they're going to have a hard time, especially keeping up with the software, the learning curves. What's your advice for teachers and educators? Jeez, it's a hard one. Like it's, it's, It all depends on their background. I mean, if teachers have come through from the industry and got into lecturing, then I think they'll mm. be fine. Mm. But if a, if, a, if a lecturer sort of come from the background of, um, you know, the whole theory through the tertiary, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if that's such a good thing mm. because um, it's one thing to, you know, teach something that sounds good in theory, but, you know, until you're on site yeah. or actually in the workplace doing it, you'll know a lot of it doesn't actually work. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I always I just suggest, like, get work experience. Um, so, if, you know, I'm sure some unis like here will take, students out on sort of field trips and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the teachers are going for that journey as well. Um, that will always help. Yeah. Um, Learn with the students essentially. Yeah. And I'd probably also suggest maybe getting some um, um, experienced people in the industry just to come in the odd time with students just to share some things because, you know, it, it would be difficult for lecturers um, to see to keep up with what the industry is actually doing mm. when they've you know, got their own job and their own busy lives. Yep. But um, if you bring people in... Um, you know, from on the field in certain companies. And yeah, I think that would be beneficial. Yeah. So you're essentially advising industry collaboration within the education sector. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, this has been, it's it's actually a very good, I think, extension of uh, one of the first episodes with uh, one of your colleagues, actually, Sherman. Uh, We talked about BIM in season one. Uh, but more specifically toward within the design and um, architecture industry. So this is actually the next step, broadening it out. And um, so there's a lot of, I think, connections and reflections within each one. So last but not least, how can they get in touch and learn more? What's your advice for the next step right after finishing listening to this? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so people can reach out to me there if they want to. Um, Again, I'm one of the... Uh, committee members for a local Brisbane group. Uh, not much is happening at the moment with lockdowns. We've tried to get a few events going this year, but unfortunately the timing hasn't been good. Um, I just encourage people to come to those events um, and uh, when we can do them. Um, but yeah, it's, um, just yeah, reach out on LinkedIn. Absolutely. So make sure to check out the actual links in the show notes right below this and um, we'll see you guys soon in, uh, in the next episode but thank you so much Nathan I've learned a lot myself no worries thanks Evan. that's it for today's episode now it's time to take action and build on the learnings to get inspired first up jump on to rashansenanayaka.com forward slash podcast and check out the show notes links and other relevant learning materials from this amazing episode Next, if you learned something new today, click that subscribe button and set yourself up to receive live notifications on future episodes, as well as more opportunities to learn from our amazing guests, brands and speakers. Last but not least, it's time to have your say. 
Join the conversation and share your thoughts and feedback on today's episode with a review, all while joining many others with a five-star rating for Inspiring Design with Rashan Senanayaka. Till next time.